Welcome back. Before we dig into chapter 4, let me pray and ask God to be with us. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that the wonderings of our heart cannot make your love depart. Father, that is uh, good news indeed, because our hearts, as we have sang tonight, are incredibly uh, prone to wonder. And so we thank you that you love us with an everlasting love, that you hold us tightly in your hand. Holy Spirit, would you teach us tonight uh, through this passage Would you challenge us um, and our thoughts on Christianity? Uh, But would you also comfort us uh, with the good news of the gospel of grace? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever experienced a time in your life when things were going well, when you were on a roll, things were going very smoothly, and then all of a sudden things come to a screeching halt? Have you ever had that happen? Like maybe you were doing well in school, you were uh, doing well on your test, had straight A's, maybe you got in, got a good score on the MCAT, you got into that graduate school that you wanted to get into, or maybe had more than one date with the guy of your dreams, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, um, that all came to a close. And the good old days, so to speak, were nothing but a distant memory. You ever had that happen? Well, I think we all can say that we've had something like that happen at some point in our lives. Well, that's exactly what's happening in Acts chapter 4. That's where the disciples and the apostles are in Acts chapter 4. If you've been coming this semester, uh, you know in these early chapters of the book of Acts, things are going incredibly well for the early church. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people are converted to Christianity. That's a pretty good day. Later on, not only are tons of people coming to Christianity, but we see in the end of chapter 2 that their community that they are experiencing with one another is very, very rich. Then in chapter 3, which we learned last week, saw that the apostles heal a lame man, and as a result of that, two more thousand actually are converted to Christianity so that now the number is up to 5,000 people. Things could not be any better for the early church until Acts chapter 4. And then in Acts chapter 4, they start to face opposition. They start to face unbelief from the religious establishment. And you know, one of the things, as I have been studying this passage this last week, that I think is very easy for us to miss, and we often overlook in the church, is this, that the early church was born in a pluralistic society. You ever think about that? Uh, They were born, in other words, in a culture very much like ours today, in which the church got started. Lots of gods were being worshipped. Lots of different cultures were together. Lots of different faiths existed together. 
And then Christianity comes on the scene, and from the very beginning, Christianity starts to make exclusive claims of absolute truth. And so it's really not all that shocking that they would start getting pushback. It's not all that shocking that these early apostles would get thrown into prison for the things that they were claiming and saying about Jesus. We live in a pluralistic society today. And so we have tons to learn from this passage and, for, and from how the early apostles in the early church handled opposition and particularly the ways that they handled unbelief that they encountered all around them. Look at verse 14. In the midst of this opposition that they are facing, Peter and John were filled with great courage. Look at what it says in verse 14. The council was astonished because these men had so much courage that they said that they actually were like Jesus. They had courage the way Jesus had courage. And where did this courage come from? Did it come from themselves? Was it something that they worked up within them, their own heart, on their own? Look at verse 8. Absolutely not. Verse 8 tells us that that courage came from the Holy Spirit. And so this courage, this Holy Spirit courage, so to speak, led these early apostles to do three things. Expose unbelief, to serve God consistently, and thirdly and finally, it led them to challenge unbelief. So we're going to look at those three things. Number one, this courage that the early apostles had, number one, led them to expose unbelief. Look at verse 12. This, this is really the kicker uh, in this section because it is this verse in what comes out of the mouth of Peter that actually got them in trouble. Look at verse 12. Peter says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Peter and John are thrown into jail because they have made exclusive truth claims about Christianity. You see, the Roman world was a pluralistic and officially pluralistic society. It was, yes, go do your thing, worship whoever you want, that's totally fine with us, but in the midst of that, you must also bow down to and worship the emperor. You must also, in the middle of whoever you're worshiping, you must also confess that Caesar is Lord. Therefore, by definition, you cannot claim that your God is supreme. Well, Christians couldn't do that, could they? Christians could not say Caesar is Lord. Why? Well, because Christians believe that Jesus is Lord. And therefore, they are thrown in prison. I want to suggest that it's not a whole lot different today, is it? I mean, think about it. What happens when Christians start saying 
that Christianity is the one true religion. What happens when Christians start making statements like, Jesus is the only way to heaven? How is that received? Not well. Christians are called exclusive. They're called narrow-minded. And they're seen as dangerous. And it gets us in every bit as much trouble as it did the apostles back then. You know, one of the things that people say about Christianity is that Christianity is arrogant. You ever heard that? Uh, Christianity is arrogant. And people say that because the Christians say that Jesus is the supreme Savior. And it goes oftentimes like this. Yeah, it's fine for you to believe in Jesus. That's good if that's what you want to do. But don't you dare say that he's the best. Don't you dare say that he's the only way. Don't you dare say that he's better than Muhammad or better than Gandhi or better than Buddha. Friends, here's the trouble with that. Is that Jesus says out of his own mouth in John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And here's what we need to realize. No other religious leader that has walked the face of the earth has ever made those claims. No one has said those type of things and claimed to be God. And so here's what I want us to realize, is though that might sound incredibly arrogant, Jesus is the only one to say those things. And the point is this, there is no way that you can believe in Jesus and believe that he's just like everyone else. Why? Well, because Buddhism teaches that you can have a great compassion and that that is a good thing. But you know, Buddha never teaches what Jesus teaches in the fact that he says, I'm going to spill my blood and through my blood will come forgiveness of sins. No one has ever said those things but Jesus. And so the point is that it's okay to say Jesus was wrong, but you can't say Jesus is like everyone else. And so where does that leave us? Where does that leave you with Jesus? Well, it can't be summarized any better from C.S. Lewis. Jesus is either three things. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. Those are really our only three options. He's either a compulsive liar and that his whole ministry was a sham and he made it all up, or he went way off the deep end, he's completely crazy, and he needed to be met, admitted into an insane asylum. Or, he's Lord. He is who he says he is. The Son of God. And if he is who he says he is, and he is the Son of God, the unavoidable implication to that is this. That he is the only way to God. He is the only way to heaven. You see the logic? 
And so last week, and, and, this, and, and the reason why last week I said if you're struggling with Christianity, and I know some of you struggle with Christianity, and maybe you're here, and we want to give you the space to struggle with Christianity. And if you're trying to figure out what you think about Christianity, I said this last week, we can debate the miracles all day long, but really at the end of the day, if you're figuring out what you believe about Christianity, it really stands and falls on Jesus. Find out what you think about Jesus. Because that's the center of Christianity. And ask, is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he who he says he is? And if he is Lord, then that changes everything, doesn't it? Well, another claim, or another often tack leveled against Christianity, is not that Christians are only arrogant, but also that they're exclusive. And maybe you've heard this before, and it goes something like, well, you know, it's, there's a big world out there. And there's lots of different beliefs and lots of different religions. And so Christians cannot say that there's one true religion because that messes up a peaceful, pluralistic society. And that the only way you can be truly inclusive is to say that all religions are equally true. You might have heard that before. And that's actually the way most of the world believes. But it's very hypocritical, isn't it? What? I mean, just work it out with me. Why is it hypocritical? Well, at first glance, it sounds like it's very compassionate and it's this forward type thinking. But I love Keller here. Keller and the Reason for God brought this to light. And it's a very good point. He says that this kind of thinking, all religions are the same, is just as much a bid for power, and it's just, just in, is every bit as exclusive as the Christian who says that Jesus is the only way. How so? Well, the fact that you are saying that there is no one truth that in itself is what? It is a truth claim. And when you make a statement like that, basically what you're doing is saying, my way is right and your way is wrong. When someone comes and says that all religions are the same, they are saying that their take on spiritual reality is the right one. And everyone else is wrong. And that is the exact same thing that you are getting on Christians and telling them that they shouldn't be doing. You see that? Therefore, it is hypocritical. We could talk about these things a lot more. But the first point, their courage leads the early apostles to expose unbelief. Secondly, to serve consistently. Look at verses 23 through 26. Peter and John were threatened for what they had preached, and then they are actually sent home. And it was at this moment that these early Christians, for the first time, started to realize that they were more than likely going to die. That at least some of them were going to die. And I re the reason why I want to make this point is because I think it's noteworthy. They're sent home, and the first time they're faced with the reality that some of them might die. And notice what they do. 
They do not say, well, it's been a good ride. You know, Christianity, it worked for me, but I'm totally done with it now that it's going to make me uncomfortable and bring suffering into my life. Is that what they do? No, look at verse 23 through 26. They pray. And notice the content of their prayer. The content of their prayer is not what I would pray, which would be, I need to change my circumstances. God, help me. Get me out of this situation. They do not pray for protection, which that would be the first thing I would pray. And they do not pray for vengeance on the people, which is another thing that I would probably pray. What do they pray? Look at verse 29. Here's a summary. They basically say, God, give us the courage to continue to minister to people so that they might be changed through us. Now listen, it is perfectly acceptable to pray for your needs. The Bible talks about that. The Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And so that's a perfectly legitimate prayer. And we need to pray for protection and those sorts of things. But notice they don't go there. It's not the primary thing that they're after. And here's what I want us to see. The suffering that these early Christians encountered didn't lead them away from God, but it actually led them to Him. And this point, in Acts chapter 4, when we see their response to suffering, I think it tells us something very, very significant about the Christian life. It tells us something that is vital and strikes right at the heart of what it means to truly be a Christian. And it's this. True Christians are not managers of God, but actually servants of God. And here's the difference. A manager of God who is someone who when life is going well and things are going well for you, you're totally on board with Jesus. But the first sign of suffering or the first sign of any discomfort in your life, then you walk away because Jesus isn't useful to you anymore. That's what it means to be a manager of God rather than a servant of God. And so, what does it mean to truly be a Christian? How do you know? Well, here, there's lots of ways, but here's one way you know. It's not how you respond when things are going well. When life is good. Do you want to know whether or not you're a Christian? The question is how do you respond when things aren't good? How do you respond when suffering is suddenly brought into your life? That will tell you whether or not you're truly a Christian. Because a Christian is someone who serves God consistently. In the good times and the bad times. In times of great joy, but also in times of great sadness and sorrow. And some of you might be saying, wow, I mean, Jason, that's pretty hard. Well, think about it this way. Okay, if you had a friend, and I had a friend, and well, well, let's say, and you had a lot of money, you were incredibly wealthy, and you were very well connected, and you had lots of friends because of it. Let's say all of a sudden all of your wealth was to go away, and the stock market crashed, and all your money dries up, and all of your connections 
start to dry up. And then you look around and you notice that your friends (laughs) have left you too. What would you say to that? You would say they didn't really love me. You would say they, my friends were actually using me for what they could get from me and for the benefits that they got from our friendship. And you know what? You would be indignant. And you would have every right to feel that way. Then how dare we treat God in a way that we would never want ourselves to be treated and would see it as wrong if we were treated that way. Second point, this courage led them not only to expose unbelief, but it also led them to serve God consistently in the good times and in times of great suffering. Third and last point, challenge unbelief. It also led them to challenge unbelief. Look at verses 7 and 13. Notice how emotional these men get over this. They want to know whose name and what power they are doing these things. And when they find out, they are astonished that these men are unlearned and common men. Now that doesn't mean that they were illiterate. It means that they didn't go to Bible school. They didn't train in their seminaries. They were not a part of their religious establishment. And so when we have that background, here's more how the text reads. Look at verse 7. Who are you to teach us? You see, that's the tone here. They do not like it because these ordinary, unschooled men are confronting them. Why don't they like it? Well, because to them, it's all about pedigree. It's all about credentials. It's all about earning your way into heaven. And here the disciples and the apostles come, and they're so confident. They're so self-assured. And they come saying, we know and know the way to get to God. And then Peter in his sermon, look at verse 11, totally cuts right to the heart of the matter, doesn't he? Because he goes right to their cornerstone. Look at verse 11. It reads, and notice if you've got any footnotes, this is actually a quote from Psalm 118.22. This Jesus is the stone that you rejected, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. What in the world is he talking about? Peter, and there's a lot to be said here, but let me summarize it. He's talking about the temple. And he's talking about the cornerstone of the temple. And he's basically saying, guys, Jesus has become the new cornerstone of the temple. It is him. He is the chief cornerstone. Why is that such a big deal? Well, think about the temple to the Jews was the center of their spiritual life. It was more than just a place of worship. It was at the very heart of what it means to be the the people of God. And one of the ways Jews knew that they were acceptable to God was that the temple was operating and it was functioning and doing business. And they loved it. And so look at what Peter is doing. It's brilliant, isn't it? 
He's going after the very heart of their problem. And what he is saying is that your problem is that you have been living your life based on merit. And the gospel comes through the apostles in the book of Acts and says that it's not about what you do, but it is about what Jesus has done for you. And it totally blew their categories and astonished these religious leaders because these men had a new identity based on a whole different system. It was based on a system of grace, not a system of merit. Every human being has a cornerstone. Every human being has a life system that they place ultimate value on. It is your security. It is your wisdom. It could be anything and everything. Your cornerstone could be your family. It could be a relationship. It could be your morality. It could be your career. It could be your education. Your cornerstone and the thing that you're looking to for ultimate value could be even things like religious involvement. Like, I've got to be involved in every Bible study and in every ministry on this campus because that's how I have value. Your cornerstone is the thing that you look to to make you feel good about yourself. For example, when you came to Ole Miss, whatever hometown or high school you came, to, came from, more than likely you were the stuff. <laughs> Lots of you were the stuff. Meaning you were the most popular. You were the best looking. You were the best athletes. You were the smartest. You were the most social the most outgoing, and then you come to Old Miss and then all of a sudden you feel your confidence being shaken. And you're not so confident anymore. And you start to feel really insecure and your self-esteem starts to hit rock bottom. Why does that happen? And what is that saying? Well, it's saying that you have been building your identity your whole life on relative status. In other words, it reveals that you've been building your life and your identity on your own merit and on what you do. Friends, notice this passage. The Gospel doesn't offend these people's intellect. I mean, they're not arguing over the resurrection and whether or not it's true. Why are they so upset that they throw them in prison and are frustrated, and we're going to see next week, actually want to kill them. I want to suggest it's because they're having their cornerstone shaken. Christianity, friends, it comes into every and any life system, including yours tonight, and it shatters it into a billion pieces. Why? Because it's based on merit. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is based on grace alone. What's your cornerstone? What are you building your life on? If it's anything but Jesus, it will never sustain you. Mark my word. How can I say that? Well, because think about it. Because it will be based on you. 
and on your performance and on your circumstances. And you will always be asking the question over and over and over again, how do I know whether I've done enough? Christianity comes and says, my identity is not based on my own merit, thank goodness. But it is based on the amazing grace of God. Let's pray.